Today we're talking to Jared Henderson, who is the first male to be on the Uppity Women show. And if you're wondering why it's called Uppity Women and I'm interviewing a guy, it's because I'm an uppity woman. I met Jared in 2017, it must have been, when he was preparing to run for governor of the state of Arkansas as a Democrat. He did lose in 2018 against the incumbent Asa Hutchinson. Just to disclose my bias, I was a supporter of Jared. I tried to raise money for him and I voted for him. I think he is a really wonderful asset in the state and I am glad that he's come back to Arkansas. So this is actually the second conversation that we had. The first time uh, we did about an hour and a half conversation and I got home and was going to upload the recording to my drive and discovered that there were, I don't know, three seconds of uh, silence on the recording. So I don't know what happened, but it took me a while to let him know that I had done that and that we would have to talk again. Fortunately, he's very gracious and did not mind doing that. It was embarrassing, but you know, whatever, things happen. The first time we covered really in depth his biography, and I didn't do that so much in the second interview, but I want to run through some of his background. He was born in Little Rock, grew up in Springdale, went to the Naval Academy because he wanted to be an astronaut. But while he was there, he broke his hip, so that spoiled those plans. He came back to Arkansas and attended the U of A. He got two degrees in computer science and physics. And then he went on to Harvard, where he got an MBA, and he also got a master's in public administration at the Kennedy School. From there, I believe he went to work for NASA. He was initially a research scientist and then directed a leadership program. He also worked for the renowned McKinsey and Company. They're a consulting firm in D.C., and we'll talk a little bit about stuff that he did while he was with them. Uh, And then he came back to Arkansas, and he was with Teach for America. He was also a part of Forward Arkansas, which created a plan for public education in the state, and a lot of which the uh, State Board of Education adopted. Anyway, this is my conversation with Jared, and then at the end, I... Uh, without really doing an exit uh, comment. I just shut the recorder off and Jared and I kept talking for a few minutes. So it ends pretty abruptly, but when it ends, you can enjoy the beautiful music of Daryl Sean. So thank you um, for You're meeting welcome. with me again. I enjoy uh, This is all trial and error. And you know, <laughs> when you said we could do this again, you probably didn't think we were going to just do it over. So in this conversation, we talked a lot the first time about kind of the details of your life and how you got from one place to another. Mm-hmm. And I, I do want to go through that, but maybe not in quite as much detail because I, I'm very interested in talking about your big brain and, and your mm-hmm. big ideas and um, what you see uh, for the future of Arkansas and, and how we can all work together to achieve great things. Mm-hmm. Great meaning better roads. I mean, it doesn't have to be this yeah. grand, huge thing, but, but like, how can we create a state where Amazon is begging us to come mm-hmm. be headquartered here, mm-hmm. right? Because, you know, I hear all these people say, well, come to Cersei or come to wherever. They ain't coming. They are not coming to Arkansas, right? Yeah. And there's a reason. So yeah. how do we create a place that is... Um, helpful to everyone or good for everyone and gives gives most of us at least the opportunities to do well and um, and be a place where, well, I'm proud to live here. There mm-hmm. are really great things about Arkansas, but yeah. we can be really proud and be a place where people want to come. Yep. So that's, um, if we can, I'd really like to talk about those things. But but before we get there, mm-hmm. um, Jared Henderson, thank you. Uh, gubernatorial candidate for- Former. Former, yes. Uh, <laughs> But but hard fought race. Uh-huh. Do you feel like you recovered from that race? Um, 
Uh, physically, yes. Mm-hmm. Like I, I certainly feel good and rested again. I think mentally, uh, my mind is free, and I think back to to near full strength. You know, emotionally, um, I had someone ask me the other day if I like if I had kind of gone through the grieving process of losing and losing, you know, very publicly. And I I kind of paused and, and thought, you know, I haven't really thought about it. Um, and I'm still, I'm still thinking about that. So to your point about recovery, I, I feel good and I feel like I'm in a healthy place, but doing something like that will give you a new perspective on a lot of things that'll never go away. So I'm recovered, but changed. Can you articulate any ways in which you've changed? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, uh, it's just a lot clearer to me now how really hard it is to, make a difference in a democracy in politics, how, how hard you have to work, the resources that you have to assemble, the relationships that you have to build and the time that you have to have to really move the needle in politics. You know, we, we work, we, our campaign was almost a year long. Like if there's one thing that I'll take with me to the grave, it's, I have no regrets about how hard we worked and how, you know, just tirelessly we tried to engage as many people as we could. And, you know, the bottom line was we just didn't have enough time or resources to reach enough people and to reach enough people in the time that we needed to change minds and to, to get people to consider a different alternative. And so it's got me thinking about, you know, given the things that I want to be true in the state in my lifetime, you know, what's the time and the resources and what strategies is it going to take? And, and I, I'm still as convinced as I ever was that positive progress and achieving good and worthy and honorable things is possible. I haven't lost any amount of hope, but the resources and time it's going to take, I think I'm a little bit more uh, realistic about that now. Are you still considering running for office again in the future? Uh, I think it's very likely that I will, that I won't run for anything in 2020. It's just too soon, and there's nothing coming up in that election that I'm really on fire right now at this point in my life to run for. Mm-hmm. Um, I also just think that uh, producing change right now, we need to just get back to basics. We need to rebuild some relationships around the state. We need to establish some organization, some things that are very unglamorous but very important, like good, solid, reliable data systems. <laughs> Uh, we've got to build those things before any any candidate that's different uh, than what we have now is going to have a fighting chance of being heard and understood, much less winning. So when you're talking about data systems, you're just talking about um, the basically the Democratic Party as a whole and and putting all the pieces together throughout the state. Yeah, the, the Democratic Party and also just just more generally the electorate. Like, who are the voters? Where are they? What are they? What actually brings them to the polls? What are they passionate about? What are they voting on? How does that change between midterms and general elections? elections. You know, there's a lot of lessons that you can learn there that you can then apply to decisions you make about who you engage and how, you know, both in the next two or three elections and over the next decade. I, I have not had a chance. I'm actually in the process of doing this now. I have not looked at all of the most recent election data in great detail, but I do know that, or I believe that while voting in Arkansas was up a lot versus the last midterm election, we still have one of the lower voting rates in the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is an opportunity. I agree. Yeah, I'd be curious to know. I'll follow up with you on that sometime because I'm, I'm yeah. curious to know who is voting, what age groups, right. um, what is what is it that brings them out? You know, is it just that there is a person of color on the ballot or um, they're going to vote for any know, Democrat? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. So in this world we live in now, you know, one thing that I said to you, I mean, I obviously supported you, mm-hmm. voted for you, um, was it very unsuccessful in raising money for you, but uh, that's <laughs> you worked a, hard and I appreciate that's a whole it. other conversation. Raising money's hard. So <laughs> it is hard. Um, 
one thing I said to you, and I think that you probably <sighs> heard was, you know, I wasn't mad at Asa about anything. Mm-hmm. You know, there was nothing that really stood out, you know, as well, that that jackass, you know, I'll never vote for yeah. him or whatever. Right. Yeah. And so we do seem to live in this world where you have to have a villain, you know, that you're voting against. Mm-hmm. Right. So do you think it's possible? I'm not sure exactly what my question is. Does it have to be a nasty race? Maybe. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but. Do you know what I'm trying to ask? I, I do. Um, Does there have to be a bad guy? Yeah. Well, sadly, you know, hatred and vitriol and just the ugliness, it, it does get people's attention mm-hmm. uh, more effectively than most other things. You know, people will tune in for scandal and, and you know, spectacle more than they will real substance and, and, and ideas. It's just, I hate to say that, but it is true. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I'm not resigned to that, but it's true. I think, um, uh, the, you know, the, the broader trend too, it's whether it's, it's Asa in, in Arkansas or whether it's somewhere else, like in the United States, incumbents just don't lose very often. Mm-hmm. They just don't like, um, unless there's just something really unique going on in the country or that area or that individual really makes a massive mistake. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just don't throw out incumbents very often. I want to say like 85% of the time a Senate reincumbent gets elected. And I think it's well above 90% in the house. That's crazy. That is crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. And it's been that way for a long time. Uh, and so it's, always hard to run against an incumbent unless just the sky's falling. Right. Right. So. Some scandal. Yeah. Some. Yeah. You know, one of the, you know, the, the good thing is that uh, at least in executive positions, you know, we have term limits. And so there's voters, whether, you know, uh, the voters are, are going to kind of have to take a fresh look at least every eight years or so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm torn on term limits. I'm generally against them because I believe that that's what elections are for. But to your point, you're right. It is nearly impossible to beat incumbents without, with, in the without absence of a scandal. Without something really unusual yeah, happening. Right. That's, that's right. right. So, yeah. you know, um, I also feel like term limits have been created because we want to get rid of people but we just can't, you know? And <laughs> yeah. so, I don't know. It just seems so, I don't know. It seems shady to me, but that's <laughs> neither here nor there, I guess. Yeah. Um, all right. So let's back up a minute. You were born in Little Rock mm-hmm. and your mother put you up for adoption. Yep. You want to talk about your family? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So I, I turned 40 four or five months ago. I was born here in Little Rock, a few miles from where we're sitting right now. Given up at birth by my mother, who was, I think she was 17 years old. That's pretty much all I know about her. Taken in by a great family that was uh, from central Arkansas. Uh, We moved up to Springdale when I was three or four, school age. And I did K through 12 up there. Um, Public school. Had a had a good good young life, a lot of love, a lot of support. Uh, I think I got a pretty good education. Wanted to go into the military uh, out of high school to serve. Went to the Naval Academy, but broke my hip my first year. I was there, so came home to heal up and enrolled in the University of Arkansas. And four and a half years later, graduated. Right. So <laughs> another. I don't want to belabor all this. That's Not a, belabor it, but. Uh, um, uh, your story is very interesting to me. You you wanted to be an astronaut, yeah? I did. Yeah. yeah. I remember um, when I was seven years old when Challenger blew up. I don't know why I was home from school that day, because I think it was a Tuesday, but I was. And I remember watching it with my mom. And I remember like it was yesterday. I was only seven years old. And I remember t- turning to her and telling her I wanted to be an astronaut. 
right when Challenger blew up, which just horrified her. But <laughs> but it stuck with me for years. Well, why uh, do you think you responded that way? I, I don't know. I was already excited and passionate about uh, space travel. My dad had a huge collection of National Geographics that, you know, seeing those, he had a whole wall full of them. And, and that's one of my earliest memories as a child. And, and before I even I could read, I would open those up and find the, the issues that had the most engaging illustrations and pictures. And at that time, they were, he had all these issues that were showing these just unbelievable photos from the Voyager missions where we'd sent these probes to, you know, Jupiter and Saturn and, and, and all these planets. And it just captivated me before I even really understood what I was looking at. And so as I got older and just learned more and more about it, I just became more excited and passionate about it. Space exploration to me is, is endlessly fascinating. Mm -hmm. I I cannot wrap my brain around it. Like I just can't, it's a concept I can't grasp necessarily kind of the, uh, the uh, immensity of it. Um, Yeah. Do you think that your brain just works that way or do you also feel that way? Oh, no. You know, it's, it's a great question. You know, I, I very briefly worked at NASA for a few summers and one in, in, a, in a lab and the other I was in more of a leadership position. And it's it's interesting because I found the more I understood about rocket science or orbital mechanics or whatever, instead of being like, oh, this is how it works. This is how we did it. I just became even more mesmerized that we ever figured it out. Right. Like it is, it's just astounding, you know, almost everyone alive today or the vast majority have just grown up when we've been a spacefaring nation. Right. And so we sort of take it for granted. It is, I still kind of can't believe we do the things we do. I can't either. It's unreal. I can't believe I have a phone that I can just touch and it does things. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I mean, everything to me technologically is, is, incredible because again it, science is nothing i ever pursued yeah but i again it's just when it comes to space i mean i well i say space it's more than just space right it's um well what would you call it, it? i don't it's to me it just it's just human ingenuity like mm-hmm. like you know uh a few hundred years ago like mankind was just kind of living the same way we'd live for thousands of years. You know, there wasn't a lot of hope or evidence that the future could be better, that people could be organized in ways that could really build, you know, true, broad sharing prosperity in any way, whether it's in health or education or civil rights. And in just a few hundred years, what had long been just the musings of different philosophers and dreamers has now started to really get acted out. And, you know, we've got a lot of things. We rightly, I think, still focus on the ways we need to improve as a country and as a world. But wow, like if if someone from 1500 could come see like the rights that a lot of people enjoy today, not just the technological marvels, but just like, uh, heck, the fact that you and I are sitting here is like full equals and peers. Mm -hmm. They'd be astounded. Right. Uh, And they'd be right to be astounded because you hardly ever saw that in the history of humanity and certainly not at any meaningful scale. Right. Yeah, it is incredible. And uh, we're just advancing so quickly. It's I I try to embrace it and not be a Luddite. You know, I mean, I I can be afraid of it or I can just say, man, I'm here for the ride. You know, you know, there's nothing I can do about it. So while it does wonderful things, you know, it also worries me. I'm I'm always so conflicted. But I like the way you frame that because, you know, I um, it's a it's a part of my personality that I think that I have to fix everything. And so it's hard (laughs) for me not to see things and think 
yeah, but not everyone has access to the internet. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like I'm always seeing the inequities or the problems yeah. and not appreciating and taking for granted the incredible things that we do get to do. I mean, I just drove in a car with my husband to Chicago and back and mm-hmm. we could have flown. I mean, you know, just all of these things that mm-hmm. we have all just taken for granted. Yeah. And and again, being in going to space, uh, we've already, you know, been to the moon. Well, some people think we haven't, but uh, <laughs> yeah. and uh it's all very exciting, um, and I and I'm gonna try to remember what I was gonna ask you, the way I was thinking it, and and I know we've just talked about you having a more positive outlook on things, but in the context of wanting to run for office, wanting to help people, um, wanting to make the world a better place. Do you ever feel cynical? And if you do, how do you overcome that? Or do you tend to stay pretty positive about yeah. things? Uh, it's an ongoing battle. Like I, I generally, I'm an optimist, uh, and, and, uh, but especially the last few years, um, I, I, it's been harder to maintain that. I won't lie. You know, I think that I, I always come back to two things though. One, like whenever you, whether it's on the daily news or a book that I read or whatever, like it's easy to lose a little bit of hope when you just kind of look at how ugly things are that happen in the world to this day, you know, whether it's in our political system or just in, in society. But I always remind myself that like human beings have always been human beings like this stuff has always been out there in some way shape or form i mean the the nonsense that we see in our in our politics right now all this stuff the greeks were writing about that 2400 years ago and i say that to say in spite of all of that we have still found ways and especially in the last two or three hundred years to to grind out some undeniable progress Mm -hmm. and so it just tells me that even if i lose sight of how we continue to muddle in a in a good direction, it is very possible because we've already done things that were much harder. Uh, that being said, uh, you know, I, I try to maintain a healthy balance between saying, you know, yes, this is possible. We can do this, but also saying it's not guaranteed. We could go, we could not only stop moving forward, we could go backwards radically. So mm-hmm. other societies have done it before. There's no reason we couldn't. Right. Um, and so what's, what can I do and what can we do more broadly to just to try to push in the right direction? Right. But it is hard. It's, it's a, it's a pretty ongoing struggle, I'd say. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I am, I don't want to be hyperbolic uh, or exaggerate anything, but I do think that the U.S. is um, sort of riding a line right now um, mm-hmm. on its position in the world and its position as a leader. Yeah. And I, I feel in a way like and I know that I have a bias because I'm I'm not a supporter of Trump, but I'm a supporter of our country. Yeah. And. You know, I worry that that we're making decisions um, that are going to hurt our position. But at the same time, I was like, well, maybe it's good for us to be taken down a notch because I do think we take so many things for granted. Yeah. And um, it might be good to kind of rethink policy and our yeah. uh, relationships and place in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I that that is the as I if I try to put the most optimistic spin I can on the last two or three years of our politics. It is, it's it's shown us where we really are mm-hmm. as a society, like what people will accept mm-hmm. and what they will go along with and what they will tolerate and rationalize. And it is far more than I would have ever believed mm-hmm. even three years ago. And it's it's just shown me really clearly that we 
we have not made nearly as much progress as we think we have. The the fault lines in our society and the the, the tensions people are feeling are still extremely raw, um, and and the progress that we made is a lot more fragile, a lot. And it, it's good that we know that. Right. right. <laughs> uh, now we've got a better chance of stepping up and pushing it back. Yeah. Um, I, I hope we do that. Yeah. Um, I. You know, it's funny. I. Uh, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I am glad, I am glad that President Trump tweets. Mm. It shows who he is. Yes. If he didn't do that, it would be a lot harder for people to rationalize or smooth over different aspects of his character. I mean, he, you know, an Arkansas Maya Angelou once said, when someone shows you who they are, believe them. Believe them. That's right. Like, thank goodness he shows us who he is. Like, I'm glad he does. Yeah. We'd be in real trouble if he hid it a little bit more. Well, and, and most politicians do hide it. Yeah. So we don't that's, really know. Yeah, that's, you know, that's right. We can see in their behavior, and, and we can obviously tell a lot by his behavior and, and decisions he makes. Yeah. But yeah, no, you're right. Um, you know, you and I are, are both big fans of Robert Kennedy. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that is something I always try, always try to go back to the 60s and where this country was at that time yeah. and how violent it was yeah. and how scary it was. Uh-huh. Because... It could be worse. Way worse. And so when I'm in my doldrums and thinking, holy shit, what are we doing to ourselves? I think, okay, well, we're not there, right? And we at least are not using that kind of violence for the most part to solve our problems. I mean, buildings were getting bombed. You know, presidents were being assassinated. I mean, so it's, you know, and I I would never wish that on certainly not President Trump or or anyone else, you know, so I would like for us to to solve our problems um, in different ways. So, so it could be worse. It could be way. No, that I actually think that is like one of the most constructive lines of thoughts you can have. And, And that's that's an example of like what I tell myself when I find myself starting to lose a little bit of my vigors. I'm like, okay, we the country has been in far worse places. I mean, you talk about the 1960s. 60s, then go back to the 1860s. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a thousand times worse then, right? Um, so, you know, we've been in tougher spots. Uh, you know, what is called upon us right now to get us back on the right track is far, far, far less than what's been called on, on other generations, at least so far. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's let's keep a bad situation from getting worse. Let's recognize where we're still making good progress and and and, and keep going. Agreed. You know, uh, speaking of generations, I was telling my mom the other night that I feel like we have this generational amnesia. And you and I may have talked about this Mm -hmm. before. I can't remember where I thought, you know, I'm 48 and I thought that I thought the women had taken care of everything until Mm -hmm. I started paying attention at about 40. And I have heard that there are similar tensions in the OG civil rights generation versus the young people of color who are now um, fighting for current civil rights, right? Mm-hmm. Or fighting currently. Mm-hmm. And that there's this tension in the way we do things. Yeah. Is, uh, in your experience, whether it's for Teach for America, Mackenzie, wherever you've been on the campaign trail, do you see that tension between generations? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, it's progress in this stuff's always messy for a lot of reasons. And one is is because of just the experience and perspectives and stuff of, of different generations. You know, take like, um, for example, right now, the word socialism is getting used a ton in our like political discussion. Right. right? And uh, one of the things that I've found most interesting, I guess, interesting is, is a word I could use for that is the 
you know, the older Democrats that I'm aware of, and I say older, meaning, you know, 60s and certainly 70s and above, like they they react to, to the, that word almost the same way, in many cases, almost the same way as Republicans do. And because for them, that word is loaded. It has a, a, a very, very different meaning to them, I think, than it does to someone who's 35 or younger, mm-hmm. you know, who doesn't remember the Soviet Union Right. Or Mao in China and doesn't associate the two. You know, when they think of socialism, they think of Norway and Sweden and, and, and whatnot. Right. Um, and which fine, that that is more what they're talking about, right? But right. but it's uh, and I don't say that to say this side's right or wrong in this case, just to say how it is very easy for people with very different life experiences to talk past each other. Right, and I do think that social socialism and communism are used synonymously mm-hmm. by a lot of people, yeah. and um, I can. I mean, when did the wall, the Berlin Wall came down in 89. So I was 18 then. And so I remember that very well. So Mm -hmm. I, you know, I had 18 years of of this Cold War, which wasn't really tangible, but it was there. Right. But I think the reason that people are latching onto that word socialism, this is just my my liberal bias speaking right now. I don't know anything for sure, but is is because we know that people are suffering Uh and we know that the system as it is and has been created is to benefit people already in power or people who have the resources, right? Mm-hmm. And it's not for Joe Schmo um, or Jane Schmo in Little Rock. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. And so yeah. so I, I think when people are latching onto this as an idea is, is um, a, a way to make it more even, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and to have yeah. a, a, more, a more level playing field, yeah. right? Which I would like to see. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a socialist, as I understand it. Um, <laughs> yeah. But even, you know, I, I'm no expert on economics, but... One thing I love about America is its can-do attitude, right? So yeah. The, yeah. so this kind of capitalist system that we've created, I would like to see a more humane system of capitalism yeah. because I like competition. Right. I like trying to be the best, right? And I can only imagine what that feels like, you know, yeah. but I know I can try to do it. And so I don't want, I've heard from people who have lived in Norway or Sweden and they say, yeah, I mean, it's great, but there's, it's so dispassionate. Yeah. You know, there's just no, everyone always feels fine, you know, yeah. and, and I love the passion of this country. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, it's, um, this is another example of where like our political discourse and, 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 uh, and this is driven in part by the media that likes to sell more stories and, and by politicians who need to break people into camps that they can win over. But, you know, this is another example where everything is either or it's this or that. Well, mm-hmm. we're going to be a capitalist country. We're going to be a socialist country. We're gonna, And I'm just like, what a nonsensical choice, mm-hmm. right? Like the, the, the question is, how do you get the best out of all the economic systems, right? Like capitalism is spectacular for driving efficiency, for promoting innovation. It is awesome at those things. Like, great. Mm -hmm. It also, over time, like without, if it is unchecked, it concentrates power in very few hands, which absolutely warps democracy in our legal system. It has happened over and over again in the history of the world. It happened 120 years ago in this country, and it was a Republican Republican president, Teddy Roosevelt, who actually said, you know what? We're going to keep the best as capitalism, but we're going to put some checks on it. We're going to return more power and opportunity to more people. And it helped, you know, lay the groundwork for more shared prosperity, uh, you know, that came with ups and downs, but came later. And, you know, so this idea that, well, it's it's capitalism versus socialism, all this stuff, that's a bunch of nonsense. The question is just how do we, yes, how do we keep the best of capitalism? 
while making sure that everyone's got a fair shot uh, to live a life of opportunity. Was was Teddy Roosevelt the trust buster? Yep. Okay. So he he basically broke up monopolies. Yeah. 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 And at the time it was around, you know, oil, it was around rail, a few other things, mm-hmm. right? And a few folks had just, uh, had literally, they were controlling the economy. Uh, and even when, you know, those folks are benevolent, it's just, it ends up being bad and usually they're not benevolent. Yes. Yes. Or they just pretend they are. Yeah. Uh, is there a way... And, and this may this may not be a fair question, and you don't have to answer it if, mm-hmm. if the way certainly the way I frame it. But do we should we have billionaires, right? And yeah. I and I don't mean should we take my hard work and give my money to yeah people, but I mean, but should there be a system in which Jeff Bezos has all the money in the world? Yeah. Because it can, yeah. you know, and but I don't know. I don't know what I want to happen in, in the alternative. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Have, is this something you've thought about even on a smaller scale? So, I mean, somewhat. Um, I, I, I would not. Uh, I don't believe in outlawing billionaires. You know, I, I think to me, let, let, let's let's classify between two types of billionaires. Right. There's take someone like Bill Gates. I mean, that man. And I, I realize people get debates. Like, he has built a world changing enterprise. Yes. <laughs> like. Yes. If anyone deserves to make a lot of money, it's it's someone like him, right? You've then got billionaires that are sitting on the financial system that are, are have have achieved positions of power and companies that existed before their grandfathers and grandmothers were alive, mm-hmm. and they are rich entirely because of the power that they found. Right. Um, that doesn't seem productive to me. You know, I also do think I think there are ways to reward and incentivize, you know, entrepreneurship and creation like what Bill Gates did, while also not um, over time rigging the system. I am a I am a big believer in high estate taxes for very rich people. Right. You know, uh, you know, I'd like to call it the Paris Hilton tax. You know, just like you want to give. We should all, if we work hard, we should all be able to pass on some of that to our kids and give them you know, a, a chance to have a better life. And yes, that's fine and easier life if they want. But I'm a believer in the, I don't even know who said it, but someone, you know, once said, I want to give my kids enough money to do something, but not enough money to do nothing. Yes. yes. <laughs> and I'm just like, yeah, I, I think that's a good yeah. ethos, you know, and, and, uh, well, and those kids did nothing to earn that money. Yeah. And that's, that's this thing. So there's, there's this line of thinking that, well, you welfare people don't deserve it oh, because you haven't worked for it, but it's okay that the children of wealthy people get all that money for nothing, right? Yeah. And and again, I'm not anti-rich. would like to be rich someday yep. and I will use my power for good. But I'm with you on the estate tax. Yeah. There's the people who benefit from that, the beneficiaries didn't do anything to earn it. Now they can use that money and then build it into something. Yeah. A la Donald Trump, setting aside all of the other issues that might go along with um, how they structured their, mm-hmm. their money. But, uh, you know, uh, great. And then you build it into something. And then when you give it to your kids, yeah, they can do something with it, but they're going to pay the taxes on it. That's right. That's right. Well, and when you look at, you look at, uh, people like Jeff Bezos or Mark Zuckerberg, like it, it's, there, there's two potential problems that arise from, from their wealth and their control. Uh, it's, it's one, the amount of money and capital that they have and the influence that comes with. It's also just think about the infrastructure they control, <laughs> you know, um, 
you know, when TR did what he did, it wasn't just because these guys were getting too rich and powerful. It's because they also controlled, if you, if they controlled the oil, if they controlled the rail, they effectively controlled the economy. That's right. Uh, um, and and we believe, I mean, a core value in America is that, you know, we believe in, in democracy and shared power and checks and balances in government and in society more generally. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, someone doesn't have to be called a king to have the power of one. Right. Uh, right. So. Yeah. The consolidation of media. Um, that's a dangerous thing. It's terrifying. Yeah, it's it terrifying. Yeah. Because we're we're getting such a limited um, perspective. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and just every editorial meeting is controlling the news we consume because they're making the decision on what they're going to cover. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I worked in journalism before I went to law school yeah. and I'll never forget my editor at the time. I worked at the Pine Bluff Commercial and really liked my editor. Uh, I can't remember his name right now, but uh, it was during the, must've been the 2000 election. And I wanted to cover some event that Ralph Nader was at. Mm-hmm. And he said, no, we're not going to cover him because he'll never win. And I said, yeah, well, he'll never win if you don't cover him yeah. because you control this media, this this mm-hmm. outlet for them to, to share their message. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I didn't win that fight, but that's part of the problem. Yeah. And he was never going to win, but who gets who should make that choice yeah. right and so when you do have this consolidation of all the you know the media you know and we're only listening to MSNBC or Fox or CNN i i watch CNN or listen mm-hmm. to it but um, i don't know how i'm getting off into this into monopolies i guess mm-hmm. it's yeah, they're they're that's... not it's not that i am jealous of the money and power they have it's that it affects us all negatively yeah I'm sorry, I'm not articulating this well, but it's, I, we feel the same. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and then and you can layer on monopolies and also just the effects of capitalism more generally. You know, like mm-hmm. uh, news companies are discovering, especially in this age of social media and this data we have. I mean, you can literally, with Facebook and all this, there's plenty of people that can probably tell you way more accurately than I can exactly where I consume my news, mm-hmm. how much, how long I stay on certain types of articles. They probably know more about me than I know about myself. Mm-hmm. And that's for real. Mm-hmm. And they have found that it is very, 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 very profitable to feed people news that they want to hear. Right. And it feeds their opinions and, and, and reinforces their own confirmation bias. Right. And, and companies, and it's not even necessarily immoral, but they, they, they exist to make money and to make profits. Mm-hmm. And you put those things together without any check, and it's 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 no wonder we're getting polarized. Yes, that's right. No wonder. I... Uh you know, I have and do own businesses and it's hard, you know, um, but it's not the taxes that are killing me. It's not, it's not having customers who can spend the money. Right. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's a chicken and egg problem uh-huh. in a way. And so, you know, on minimum wage, and we did talk about this briefly, I think the first time we talked, um, you know, I paid my, when I owned a candy store, I paid my people more than the minimum wage, yeah. but I couldn't have paid them more than I did. And I probably really couldn't afford to pay the yeah. 10 bucks an hour. So, so I'm, I'm sympathetic and empathetic to business owners who don't want a minimum wage increase, but I'm also sympathetic to the people who have to pay for milk, yeah, gas, whatever it is. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's just, I don't know how to fix that problem either. Yeah. And, and how you, how you balance those interests, uh, as well as, you know, my, my husband and I have argued about this. Corporations are not people, despite what the Supreme court has said, yeah. but as a as a country, we have an interest in having healthy companies, mm-hmm. right? A healthy yep. economy, but not at the expense of the workers 
or the people who can't get jobs or whatever mm-hmm. it is. So, you know, I that's something I'm very interested in learning more about and mm-hmm. how we can do that in a way that's fair. Um for everyone. Cause again, if you, yeah. I mean, it's a big risk to, to um, start a business. Mm-hmm. Right. And I mean, I have massive debt because of the choices I've made yeah. and I will pay those, but gosh, it would be great if I could get a little break, you know? Um, but I'm not entitled to it. Yeah. I'm not entitled to a successful business. Yeah, it is hard. That, that's, that's a, a, a good example of an issue that, that, it's easy to oversimplify, but I think you very well explain example as a, as a small business owner in a type of business where the margins, even if you do everything right are very narrow, mm-hmm. right? Like this is hard, right? Mm-hmm. Should Amazon, uh, you know, pay its people a living wage? Of course they should. There's just no good excuse why they shouldn't. Like, mm-hmm. uh, they just, they have the resources, they have the competitiveness, whatever. But like, is there a, I, I'll never forget, uh, I can't remember what town in South Arkansas I was in, but I, I had a, the owner of a donut shop, a mom and pop donut shop in Southern Arkansas asked me if I support the minimum wage increase. And I said, yes. And he chewed me out for 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I don't doubt that in his business with his income saying all that, like that is a hard pill for him to swallow. Right. Maybe not a plot like Right. Like, yeah. so both things are true at the same time. That's right. Uh, and so what do we do about that? Right. That That's where I, I think the, I wish that that was the level of discussion we get into. Instead, a lot of what we're seeing in the legislature right now, I, I heard there's a bill being drafted the other day to make it legal to pay uh, people with disabilities yeah. below the minimum wage. That is offensive. Yeah. People with disabilities, like, that's cr- teenagers. That's crazy. Yeah. You know, th- there's you know, what's sad is there is a line in that that I've read in the headlines in the news. That says there's a line that says businesses of a certain size, mm-hmm. and that we should at least discuss that, right? Right? right. Because maybe, maybe a phased, maybe because you you could have a mom and pop shop in Eastern Southern Arkansas or somewhere else, right? That mm-hmm. like you know what you raise that minimum wage forty percent, and they're not going to be able to make it. Mm-hmm. We should talk about that, mm-hmm. you know. Like, let's figure out how we can how we can give how we can make this fair to everyone. Like, at least at least, at least let's have that discussion. Right. Instead, we're talking about well, if you have a disability, you know, you're, that's we just, don't value you yeah, as much. I know because you're just, not as good. Mean spirited. It is, and teenagers. I know plenty of teenagers who help support their families. Yeah. You know, absolutely. I mean, if, if work should be work. Absolutely. And exactly right. You're doing a job. Here's the minimum right. you can get paid. That's right. Yeah. But within that conversation, we also need to ask the the mom and pop donut shop owners, well, what do you need to be able to pay the minimum wage? Yeah. Do you need more customers? Do you need cheaper resources, you know, flour yeah. to make your donuts? Yeah. You know, so what is it that's holding you back? Is it yeah. that you just want to make more money? Sure. But but then of course that also gets into the question, well, do we have to then do we have to draw a line where how much money do we get to make? Yeah, you know? know, and it's just it's a very difficult conversation. But to your point, I agree with you. We're not having the conversation. Yeah. We're just for or against. Right. <laughs> no. And but I think that there's a way. Socialist or capital. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Commies. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it's these are conversations that I crave and that I wish that we would have more of. Um, and I wish that there were a better way to have these conversations publicly because people, I think, Everyone talks about this stuff. They just talk about it in different ways and from their own perspectives. So they may not use the same words you and I do. They may call, may not call something capitalist or socialist, but they're going to have a conversation in the way it affects them, right? I would really like to see more thought, I guess, put into all of this. Well, I say that we're all thinking about it, but mm-hmm. let's solve some problems. Anyway, that's my little rant. <laughs> um, 
Okay, so we're getting off in so many different directions. Well, there's a lot I to was, discuss. There's a lot to discuss. <laughs> you worked for Teach for America. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. You actually started it in Arkansas, right? I, I I built the first Arkansas team. We've had teachers here for a long time. Actually, Arkansas was one of the first places Teach for America ever sent teachers. But we didn't have a team dedicated exclusively to Arkansas until I helped build it. What did you learn in that experience about the system, the state, et cetera? Uh, um, Boy, I'll share a, a good thing and a bad thing. I mean, the, the good thing that I learned is that it is true that one of the advantages Arkansas has is it is it is small enough that if you have a good idea and, and you you've got some perseverance and the uh, you know you have a fighting shot of getting a group of people together that can really make something big happen. Uh, you know. Uh, uh, you know, I was wasn't back eighteen months in the state before I was able to get in. You know, the governor's office. I was able to sit down with some of the biggest business leaders in the state. You know, I was able to you know go talk with district leaders and, and classroom teachers all down the line. And uh, if I was living in Texas or New York or Illinois or whatever, like I I would I'd never get in the governor's office, mm-hmm. much less get to talk to him or her. Uh, and even if I did, it wouldn't result in anything. You know, on the flip side, uh, you know, uh, most of my work was in the Delta in South Arkansas, and uh, uh, there's just most people out there just not getting a fair shot. Mm-hmm. They're just not, uh, and we all really lose when we have a, an entire swath of the state where people really, without just a lot of luck, are just not going to have lives where they're going to have any real chance of, of, of realizing their full potential or, 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 or making the most out of what they want to be, whether it's in the job market or hell, even in, as, a, as a, a parent or family member. Mm-hmm. You know, you just got, there's just poor educational opportunities, weak, if not, if not non-existent economic opportunity. You've got rampant teenage pregnancy. Uh, it's just things have really broken down, you know, and it's just, it's tragic because, you know, you know, your average kid that you pull out of the Delta has as much raw potential as any kid I grew up with, yep. uh, but they don't have the same fair shot to realize it. Why? It's, it's a combination of a lot of things, you know, um, just over the last several decades or even the last century and a half, you know, farming, which was the main, you know, in, uh, economic engine of the mm-hmm. area has, has become mechanized. So it's fewer jobs. Um, it's global economy. So even the prices of what we grow and sell have, 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 have fallen. You know, you've seen some things like capitalism, which on the one hand has brought in things like Walmart, now Dollar General, which great because it can provide lower cost goods and services. To people, that's good, mm-hmm. but it also you know rips apart in some ways local economies by running out smaller mom and pop businesses right. that were long the backbone of the economy mm-hmm. around that agricultural sector. Mm-hmm. Pros and cons, right? Right. <laughs> you layer on just the legacy of race. You know, this is where the concentration of slavery was, and then got passed on to sharecropping sure. and Jim Crow. That is absolutely part of what's still going on is the legacy in the present day of, of race relations and all of that, and and uh, and it's a pretty toxic toxic brew. Right. It's, I think it's hard for people to, who didn't grow up in that environment to understand how generational poverty or trauma uh, can, mm-hmm. can affect 
families for so long, yeah. you know, because there is this, you know, just like I was talking a few minutes ago about this can-do spirit of America. Well, why can't they just do it, you know? Right. And and you've got a place that appears to me, although I don't, I'm not sure, but it appears that it just doesn't have the infrastructure to support mm-hmm. the progress that is happening in Northwest or Central Arkansas or whatever, right? Yeah. Because it's lost so much population. Yeah. Um, and so why invest in that? Even though I know, I mean, millions of dollars are poured into the Delta, but what is what exactly are we trying to fix? Do we want to just move them out of there to other opportunities or create, what are the new opportunities yeah. that could be created there? Yeah, well, you're putting your finger on one of the first problems is there, there's not a clear shared vision much mm-hmm. less a strategic plan to, okay. to go do it. You know, uh, there's just not that that's, I think in some ways, step one is, is getting clear on, you know, what, what, what is ambitious, but achievable success mm-hmm. in 10 years and 20 years and 25 years. Okay. Given that, what are three actionable priorities that we could take on? I've been thinking a lot about that lately. Uh, and I'm trying to, to, to think about what it would look like to build an organization or a few organizations that start to take that on. And I, and I think it's gotta be, it, it needs to be both focused and clear. And I, I want to use the word simple, but that's I, I do that with apprehension, and I'll say more about that in a minute. But it also needs to be multifaceted, meaning this is not purely an education problem. This is not purely an economic development problem. This is not purely a how do we break, you know, how do we address the ramifications of poverty problem? Like we, we've got to find doable ways to attack all of them at once. And, and that, that was another thing you asked me what I learned to Teach for America. That was another thing. You know, I I focused almost on, I learned a lot about the region and about its broader context, but I spent almost all my time pushing on the education piece of this. And and you'd run into it all the time. You know, people would would either say, you know, I'm all, I'm all for my kid getting a better education, but what's it, what difference is it going to make if they can't get a, a decent job mm-hmm. here? And or they'd say, well, is all this just so they can leave and never come back? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't, I don't really want my kids to leave, at least not leave for good, which is a very understandable feeling as a right. parent, you know? And, and the, you know, it's, it was it was those conversations were always tough because there's not a ready made answer, even if you you know what to say. And I now I'm starting to think more about what what to say. It's there's no short term or even medium term fix. You know, I think it, I think if we got clear and started doing all the right things tomorrow, it'd be it'd be 10 years before people started to say, hmm, we're on to something here. Mm-hmm. And it'd be a full generation before people are like, wow, we got a long way to go, but we're in a better place right. than we were back in my day. Right. You know, uh, which and is all right. I mean, big things take a long time. Right. But it's in our world, that's pretty unsatisfying. People are like, oh, there's got to be a way to move the needle in three years. Let's do it. Right. <laughs> we need immediate gratification, and especially when you are using funding from outside sources or yeah. when it's politicians, because yeah. we need results. Absolutely. To show that what we're doing is working. Yeah. Which is, is a good thing in some ways, yeah. but, but, uh, like there should be some accountability for some sort of progress, mm-hmm. but we need to, we need to get clear that, that there, there are some types of progress that are not glamorous or even inspiring, but are still really important, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you look in a place like the Delta, I tell you, one of the reasons that progress there is going to take a while is that whether it's some combination of people that aren't from there and there or whatever, like, or whether it's people that live in the same community, but live on different sides of the tracks. 
there's a there's a, a, a process of just trust building that's going to have to happen, mm-hmm. and there's no way to do that quickly. Mm-hmm. It just takes time yeah. and 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 sustained effort, and and very few people are patient enough to do that work, and even fewer to fund it. <laughs> yeah, I believe it. Yeah. You know, I think we could look at South America for I'm sorry, uh, South Africa. Yeah, uh, for inspiration and yeah. the way that they basically, from my understanding, they just basically had to put aside their bad feelings and yeah. say, okay, we can't dwell on that. We, f- starting right now, we are moving forward. Yes. Truth and reconciliation. Yeah. Yes. And, no. and that is not always satisfying because we, we, I think as humans want, I think we're retributive, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. we, we want someone to understand how they made us feel and it was shitty and you should suffer for it. Yeah. You should go to jail or, you know, whatever it is that we, it, the ways that we try to punish people. So if we're talking about race in America, I mean, you know, I don't know exactly how I feel about reparations. I mean, I've, I've read a lot about it, but yeah. you know, is that going to solve the problem? You know, I don't know. And I, I hesitate to say that because I don't know <laughs> if I'm saying that from like this position yeah. of privilege, but, um, you know, at some point we're never going to heal those wounds, you know, mm-hmm. until we decide to, I guess, yeah. you know, but again, that's easy for me to say. I don't, I don't feel comfortable really even talking about that, but, but I do think that South Africa is a place we can look to for some inspiration I do too. On, on that. I do too. There's a, there's a lot of them. One of the, 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 you know, the blessings I had getting to go to Harvard Business School and the Kennedy School is you just you just see firsthand like these brilliant, talented people from all over the world. And and, uh, and it really opens up your eyes to like, boy, there's, you know, there's how many of there's six or seven billion of us now living in all sorts of unimaginable contexts all over the world. And if you and today we have the resources sitting here in this room in Little Rock or in Helena or or Lake Village in the Delta, we have the ability pretty easily in minutes or certainly hours to like say, what's going on across the world? Has anyone else yeah, the six billion of us figured out how you make progress on issue X mm-hmm. or, you know, challenge A. Right. And you know what? Usually there are yeah. examples like there, there are there are things that like uh, like there are ways. And you, you just you know, the South Africa is such an, an incredible example of like this huge issue. And, it's, it's, uh, and, but, and, and, you know, you take that same idea and apply it to much simpler you know, like like is I, I it mystifies me. For example, you know one of the one of the obstacles to small business creation in in rural areas right now is access to credit and loans. Mm-hmm. Well, third world countries have been having microcredit for decades. Mm-hmm. There are huge, thriving, like undeniably successful companies that have been doing this in places that are that have far less to work with than even the Mississippi Delta or Appalachia. Mm-hmm. But we don't have it here. No, but we have payday lenders. Well, yes, not, we do. Not in Arkansas anymore, really. But uh, I hope not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, I, I say all that less less to voice exasperation, more to say, you know what? There's there's hope. There's there's yeah. something there. we got to get we got to get focused and, and get to work. And who better to scale these small things that work than the government? We're in everyone's lives. We have the ability to scale. Like when I say we, I mean the government. Good ideas, right? But you got to try them first, right? So, and that's, you know, we've talked before about just innovation and, yeah. and, and the government being able to be nimble. Okay, let me, I, I need to refocus for a second because sure. I, there are a couple of things I want to make sure we don't forget. Okay, so the first time we talked, uh, shifting gears, the first time we talked, I learned, the first time we did this, podcast uh, recording, I learned that you had gone to Detroit 
to help the then mayor figure out how to get out of bankruptcy, basically, right? Yeah. Can, the, you, can you talk about that experience? Yeah, I was I was a, a consultant for McKinsey and Company, and we got hired by a local foundation in Detroit to help them figure out how to close a $300 million budget deficit during the Great Recession. Uh, so that would have been 08 It was 2010. Okay. In the first half of 2011. And, uh, and of course, they but they wanted to do it. It's easy to make the math work. It's hard to make the math work without crippling city services. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and that was our charge. Like, like how do we how do we make the city government financially sustainable while not abandoning our citizens and our responsibilities? Well, and remind us about the disaster that was Detroit at the time. I yeah, mean, well, it still, was pretty dire. It's wasn't still it? struggling. I mean, you know, at that at that point, even cities that are thriving like Dallas. I did some work for Dallas a little bit before that, and even Dallas had a hundred million dollar budget deficit, mm-hmm. like at one point in the Great Recession, which is crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Detroit, yeah, they they were they were in a big fix. They they still are working their way out of it in a lot of ways. But boy, I I could talk to you for hours, if not days, about what I learned doing that work. You know, it was just. Uh, and I wish in some ways I could go and do it over again because there was a lot I didn't know as a leader and as a human when I was in that work. For example, I, you know, I was, I was still uh, really, uh, to some extent, oblivious to the implication and the mistrust that, that occurred along lines of, of race, mm-hmm. and I said, which just, I feel almost embarrassed to say that at this point, but I was, I was just like, you know what, we're going to, we're all good people. We're going to go in here and do our work. We're going to be honest and honorable with each other and things will be okay. And that's not always enough if you don't understand the lived experience and perspective of the people that you're working with and you're attempting to help and, and partner with. But yeah, we did that. We, you know, I, I found on the one hand that like there were even in a place like Detroit, which was just struggling almost as much as any other city in America, there was absolutely ways to make huge gains and progress. You know, when I was there in that first year, we did, I think we, we helped them close, you know, not just ideas on paper, but actually capture more than $70 million without leaving anybody behind, without like cutting critical services, without doing any of that. We just found opportunities for innovation and, and just good basic government to do better. You know, we had plenty of other ideas and things that were, were theoretically doable to get them across the goal line. But then the, the challenge became a human one. You know, Detroit, uh, their city government has 48 separate union bargaining units. Wow. Yes. Forget about the right and wrongs of what you propose or whatever. Just the process of negotiating, earning and building trust and agreeing on what you're going to do with 48 separate units. Oh, my God. Yes. Take, it would take years. Yeah. Yeah. This gets hard. Yeah. <laughs> Which is kind of like almost, but it, this gets hard. This isn't just purely that there are not enough smart people or good people. Some of this is just hard. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, when, when we looked at the math, you know, there was, there was really, you know, and, and a lot of progressives would just want to throw me out of a room for even saying this, but, but we, we did reach the conclusion that there was absolutely no way to make the math work in Detroit if you did not find ways to adjust the pension system and the, and the healthcare benefits, you know, and not, not necessarily for existing people that were seeing, but people that were projected down the line. There was literally like no way to close a deficit of that size unless you literally cut the police department in half. Like mm-hmm. there, there were just one dollars anywhere else. Right. And in Detroit, Detroit proper, it didn't have a tax base to raise taxes on. Like right. the people with the money and influence had left Detroit a long time ago. That isn't even an option, even if the politics would work. Um, and so it just, it, it, it showed me firsthand just how hard some of this is, even when you can strip away the political nonsense. And so do you just chip away at it? <sighs> yeah. You chip away. 
You also have got to find ways. You, I, I believe in a situation like Detroit and what and whatnot, and I could say this in the Delta and Arkansas too, you've got to be willing and able to embrace risk and to take some bold measures. Mm-hmm. You know, we uh, one of the things that we talked to the to the mayor at the time about and, and the foundations that were supporting our work is we said, you know, if you all really want to change Detroit in a decade or two and not just kind of piddle on for a century, you're going to have to do something that no one else has done. You're going to have to do something that feels radical. And and, uh, and we put a number of ideas on the table to do that. But one of the ideas that we talked about was what if you made Detroit the most desirable place in the country for new immigrants to settle. Mm-hmm. You know, you made it just, I mean, look at what New York did a century and a half ago. It just opened its arms. It brought in all these people that almost by definition, they were risking so much to come here. They were almost in their DNA, invented scrappy people who, if they had a fair shot in the right context, were going to build literally and figuratively. Why don't you bring that here? Mm-hmm. You know, is that kind of uh, that kind of proposal? Like if, if not, like... Yeah, you might educate your way out of this someday. You might figure out how to get your school system back on its feet. Like, but even if you do do that, it's going to be forty years right. before you're on the other side of it. Whereas, if you do something where in ten years you've got fifty or sixty thousand new people mm-hmm. that are building, that are here for a reason, they're on a mission. Then you know that starts to be a game changer. And that is happening in Detroit, isn't it? It is happening. Yeah, I've read articles about it. It's been a while, but it is um, happening. I don't know. I can't remember now the the general area of the world people are coming from, but, but mm. they're really building strong communities. And it's uh, very entrepreneur friendly is my understanding, right. right? Come in, do it. You That's know, right. we support you. And it's not a panacea. And I don't mean to present it as such, but it, it's it's the type of idea that, like I said, you don't, you know, it, people get, get trapped in, well, let's cut this or, mm-hmm. you know, this service or raise this fee. And those discussions aren't irrelevant. But like if, if you're really in a big hole and or if you aspire to be in a dramatically different place, you probably need to do some things that very few other people are doing. If mm-hmm. you're trying to do mostly what everyone else is doing, but somehow do it better, better, faster, and cheaper, even if you pull that off, mm-hmm. you're probably only going to see marginal improvement relative right. to other people. Right. So, and our political system doesn't revo- generally reward risk taking. <laughs> no, it doesn't. So, but it also doesn't. You know, you talk about the the what do you call them? The collective bargaining. Yeah, they're unions, basically. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't eaten today. <laughs> I might be getting lightheaded. Um, you know, you talk about the unions are making difficult cuts. And, you know, there is, uh, in my limited experience, government grew when Republicans got in charge, came in charge. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And But I will also say that the Democrats that I've known have not been willing to make hard cuts, right? And yeah. sometimes you just have to do it. And of course, we don't want, you know, Margaret, who's been there for 20 years to get fired or yeah. whatever. But I mean, it, you know, there's a there's a greater good argument, I think, mm-hmm. to be made to a lot of things. And um, are there things you can identify that you think we can set aside for the moment to maybe improve education or whatever it is that needs to be fixed in Arkansas? That's not a very good question. Mm. I don't know about setting aside. I, I feel like we're we we sometimes get focused on what I think are the wrong discussions in mm-hmm. some ways, and, and we need to to pivot. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll I'll talk about this in education. You know, the the most common 
topic that gets brought up in education, at least in central Arkansas, is it's been framed as, as school choice versus mm-hmm. not, or you're pro public school or you're not. You know, it's charter schools, um, okay. and and uh, that sucks up a lot of oxygen in the room. It it uh, it, it sends people into camps. Uh, and, and don't get me wrong, like I think in communities like Little Rock, where you have charter schools and they're growing, it has very very real implications for the traditional district. It does have implications for neighborhoods sometimes, positive and negative, to be sure. And I'm not saying oh that's not important. Let's not talk about it. But I think I think when we have that tug of war fight, I think that miss I think that prevents us from talking about what I think is a more fundamental issue in education, which is that the teaching profession has just been degraded radically over the last couple of generations. You know, uh, and if and if teaching is teaching is one of our hardest jobs to do it really well, it takes a really really talented human being that's got support and resources and freedom and accountability. Um, and if you don't get that part right, in my opinion, there's not much else that matters in, in the education system. I've, I've seen and worked with charter school operators all over the country, uh, uh, some that shouldn't exist, some that it's a very good thing do exist. And, you know, the, the ones that not not only produce incredible results for five or six years, the, the ones that that do that for 10 years. For 12 years or ongoing, they focus on building sustainable, rich, called human capitals, their, their thing. And not just the people that'll come in and work 80 hours a week, the people that really want to build something sustainable. Um, you're, you're saying the teachers are doing this. Yeah. Is that what you're right? Mm-hmm. So not even necessarily the, the, the program itself, but but the actual people who are yeah, the, running the, the, the program is, is focused on creating a culture in which teachers can not just produce results, but thrive. Okay. You know, it's an attractive, desirable place for really talented, great people to be. Why do you think that, is, that has deteriorated over the last couple of decades? I think um, we have tried, you know, there's a number of reasons, but one is we've tried to manage teachers to success. You know, uh, we, you know, starting in 1983 in the Reagan administration and going, you know, on through 2001 legislation that George W. Bush and Ted Kennedy wrote, we've decided that there's a problem in this country with public education, uh, in particular that poor and low-income kids aren't getting a fair shake. I think that's largely true. Um, but we've decided the way out of that is to try to manage our teachers to success. You know, we've got new accountability systems all these testing schemes, we grade our schools, uh, all of these things, which which by themselves aren't necessarily bad. But what we've in effect done is we've taken our best educators and we just we buried them in bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. We made it harder for them to innovate. Yes, we've shined a light on some issues that needed attention. That's good. But we haven't actually given them anything new or any new support to deal with it. And in the meantime, we buried them and, and made them feel mistrusted to an mm-hmm. extent that you know, our best teachers are either leaving early and or they're telling the best young people they know, hey, I know you want to make a difference in the world, but pick something else besides teaching. Right. Because it's not the profession that I started my career in. What and, is it and, you know, teachers pay. Uh, pay is not the end all be all. And teachers don't work harder because they get paid more. But they do. They don't need to struggle to make ends meet. And and the competitiveness of teacher pay relative to other professions over the last two generations has just steadily declined. Yeah. Uh, I think there have been studies that show that, that people are much more responsive to being valued. Yeah. Um, and having their work be valued yeah. than more money. Absolutely. More money is always good. But they've got to feel they're getting paid fairly. Right. Uh, right. They don't have to be rich. Right. Uh, but they've got to feel that they're getting paid fairly. Mm-hmm. And, and, and once that happens, then yes, it's all about value, empowerment, mm-hmm. making a difference. 
So if, uh, and, and testing is a big business, right? I mean, there are people who make a, a lot of money on school testing, is that yeah. right? Oh yeah, okay. testing, books, all of it. Right, <laughs> so what is, is there a, what's a better way to measure? And, and is that the, the question we should ask? Or is, the, is the right question, are all our schools successful? Or are we providing opportunities to all our students and giving them the resources they need to be able to do what they want? Yeah. What is the question we should be asking? Well, I'll just say on testing. I mean, I, I don't, I, I don't, I don't think we should just get rid of testing altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, as we talked about earlier, there are other models around the world where you can say, "A, are we testing the right things? B, are we testing with a healthy frequency? C, is is the or the demands and the accountability that come with testing crowding out other things that matter? We 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 rightly want our kids to be able to read and be good at math. Of course, we do." But if those are the only things that we test, we shouldn't be surprised when civics gets taught less. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, of course it is. Um, like I said, these aren't easy things to grapple with. But but I, I feel like, again, instead of saying, OK, how do we create a more sensible testing regime? It's testing yay or nay. <laughs> right. Are we as a state, are we hostage, um, uh, a hostage of uh, federal federal education? system or, or requirements? To some extent. You know, in recent years, the federal government's kind of given a m- more authority back. Um, it's different depending on the, the issue. I, I would say in Arkansas, the federal government probably does more harm than good uh, or more more help than harm. It provides more help than harm simply because we get so much federal money. Mm-hmm. By changing something or doing something big and bold, do we risk that money? I don't know. It, it depends. You'd okay. have to get really into the details. Yeah. Um, it's complicated, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I think, though, you know, the if I had won last time and, and if I win in the future, the, the shift that we really need to make in government, uh, or at least state government, you know, let, let's take the Department of Education, for instance, and 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 I actually I won't even speak to Arkansas. I'll speak to Louisiana. So I worked in Louisiana about ten or twelve years ago, again as a consultant. Uh, and what I found there was that you know you look at the Department of Education, you meet the state superintendent of education, or in our case, we have a commissioner of education, mm-hmm. right? People, I think, would view that person as the leader of our state's education program. I mean, it just has the title, it's prestige, it's governor appointed, yada yada yada. In fact, that person is the leader of the Department of Education, the state agency. They're not the leader of different districts. They have some influence, but they don't have authority. You know, furthermore, if you actually look, and again, I'll use Louisiana's example, you actually, if you asked people, what's your mission? What are you all here to do? Most of them would probably say something effective. Well, we're here to make sure that our education system is strong and the kids get a great education so they can go out and compete in the economy and live good lives. They believe that. They mean that. That's why they come to work every day. That's what they want to do. If you look at what they're actually doing, they're managing compliance to state law. Mm-hmm. They're not developing a strategic plan. They're not innovating. They're not saying, wait, what are we doing here that's working and not? And how do we innovate and evolve and adapt? They're not doing that. They're making sure, okay, I've got you know, these 10 laws I'm responsible for making sure we've got all the paperwork, the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. So you need to shift these organizations from compliance managers to real performance supporters. Right, right. <laughs> you know? Um, and the way that you do that is twofold. One, like I said, you 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 work to get the legislature a little bit out of the minutia, a little bit, which is easier said than done. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that you do is you say, okay, you know what, y'all, let's 
the education department of education's got five goals: quantitative, measurable goals that are tied to student and teacher experience, and it's your job to drive performance on these. And over time, you figure it out. That's that. If if that suddenly becomes your mission, if that's what you're being evaluated on. Over time, you can you can you can change culture, you can change systems, you can change processes. Um, we did that in Louisiana. Uh, our goal was to we got brought in to lower the high school dropout rate, increase high school graduation rate. Now I'll never forget I, you know, the first thing I did when I got there to do this said, okay, I'm going to take stock of everything the department's doing that they feel has some effect on this. And they came back to us with 30 or 32 programs that someone somewhere believed were contributing to a more positive rate of dropout or high school completion. And of those 30, there were only four that had any, any even meager evidence at all of really? impact. Yeah. But in, in their hearts, they just knew that it was making yeah, a difference. Yeah. And I don't blame them. Right. right. Like I could have gone to any other department in the country probably. And, 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 you know, and, and were there, they could sit there and verbalize for you perfectly thoughtful reasons why this pot of money or this activity was good. Mm-hmm. But was it really changing what's happening on the ground? Usually right. it wasn't. Right. And what we found is when we were able to focus resources on those things that we knew we knew worked and we were able to make sure that those those programs and those resources were going to the places of highest need not just the places where people put up their hands and asked for it it made a big difference we lowered the ninth to 10th grade dropout rate 28 percent in one year statewide wow yeah it was wow. astounding oh my god that's such an important it, age too. It, yeah no well and that's why we focused on yeah. it because that's where you lose most of your right, kids right they're legally they're, back, they're legally yeah. able to drop out of school at that point um they're, they're getting to that age where they've got just enough autonomy and, mm-hmm. and mental and physical independence to pull it off and that's where you lose them mm-hmm. um but if you inter- intervene with the right things there you can keep a lot of them so if there were if if you had to choose one to three things to change i'm going to say in our education system yeah what would it be? What would uh, let me zoom out, if you will, because, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we talked earlier about what do we do. And I talked about this multifaceted approach because I've been thinking about what I want to build and how I want to spend my time over the next few decades. And I hope in, in 10 years I'm taking on different focal points than what I'm about to name now because we've made some progress. But I'm trying to think about what are the things we can focus on that are fundamental, that if you get it, A, we can move the needle on. And if you do, good things will fall. I think one is is uh is teen pregnancy you know we just have one of the highest rates in the country other people in around the country have taken this on and made progress we should too and if we did nothing but help a 15 year old child delay pregnancy from 15 to 23 or 25 we'll change her life mm-hmm. and her kid's life mm-hmm. so I want, that's one thing i want to do too i'm thinking right now about birth to four uh, and what we can do to support the development of literacy and language in children that young. You know, there's just so much evidence that shows that that is actually when the greatest potential for like game changing cognitive and intellectual growth is for kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, their, their brain architecture is literally being written in those first few right. years. And yet all of our institutions don't kick in until they're five. Right. You know, our bold, I mean, right now, bold education is pre-K. Pre-K is four. Yeah. yeah. Four. 
Uh, and I'm, by the way, I'm not, I'm not saying like, oh, let's figure out how to get the babies in school. I'm not. I'm saying, how do we make sure they're read to? How do we make sure that they, you know, that they hear? How do we make sure that a kid who's who's born to a single mother uh, that doesn't have a high school degree mm-hmm. hears somewhere near the amount of words that I heard when I was growing up? Right. right? Because if she doesn't. Right. She's going to be at a massive disadvantage. Mm -hmm. And surely we can figure that out. Surely we can make progress on that. Right. The third thing I'm thinking about is just how do we how do we spark some economic development in areas where it doesn't occur? You know, and and I'm I'm thinking about that through the lens of how do we build on our strengths? And if you look at the most impoverished regions of the state, eastern and southern Arkansas, there's immense natural beauty. Mm. Like they don't call this natural state for nothing. Like it is one of the most beautiful. How do we help other people around the country see that? How do we encourage them and entice them to come here and enjoy that and to leave some of their money behind when Mm -hmm. they do it? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think that is a problem we move the needle on. Yeah. So two things, uh, one, one to four, and then to the natural state. So the first thing, I've got two nephews who benefited from early childhood education. Mm-hmm. And one had apraxia, uh, which is, if, if I understand, like he couldn't string vowels and consonants together, so mm-hmm. he just was not speaking. And then one, I have one now who's in the Easter Seals program, and he mm-hmm. was speech delayed. Yeah. If, if I tell you that these were angry little kids who have completely changed because they can talk, yeah. right? And if you extrapolate that out into their life, what if they didn't have parents who even knew that these things existed right. and second worked really hard to get them into these programs because it was not right. easy uh, and they're poor. They don't right. have the money. Right. Imagine that anger carrying forward if you can't read very well or if you have dys- dyslexia. And then all we can see as a society is these little bad kids, these bad boys who are just going to be. Yep slinging drugs or in jail or whatever. But if I I mean, I I wish I could describe adequately the transformation of these children because they went from angry and frustrated and screaming to the most precious, Mm -hmm. loving, sensitive boys. Mm -hmm. Right. One is now 13. But and I just I I wish we could see that long term. And and I, I feel like, again, here I am dwelling on the negative. But so much of what I hear is, well, their parents should do better. Yeah. Their parents, they may not know to do better. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and, and it's, that's a generational problem. Yeah. Can be. It is. Uh, boy. Yeah. And, like, and that's where so much of our progress is depending upon what, what's the problem that we think we're solving. Right. You know, uh, and if you, if you believe that the problem is a parent that doesn't care mm-hmm. versus a problem that you have a parent who's either not informed or who is just stretched too damn thin, mm-hmm. you're going to do very different things in response yeah. to those two problems, right? Yeah. Like, um, I'll never forget, I was in uh, Pine Bluff a few years ago. As part of some education work I was doing, it wasn't Teach for America, but something else. And I was at a... Uh, this round table of community leaders that had come together, people that had volunteered their time to help improve the education system. These were people that, by definition, care, that want to see a better future, that believe a better future is possible. They were giving their time to, to put into it. And I had made a presentation to them on some of the work that I had done recently. And at the end, they were asking me some questions. And I had a gentleman that put up his hand. And, 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 and he meant this in an earnest way to try to learn. But he said, you know, he said, I've just observed that, you know, we, we just have a cultural problem in our schools. He said that, you know, these kids, by the time they're 
9, 10, 11 years old, they just aren't interested in learning. They don't like to learn. They don't value education. And until you solve, uh, he's like, and, and I just don't know what you do with a kid that doesn't like to learn. Where do we even go with that? And, and some people would immediately label that guy as racist or whatever. I don't think that he was. He was there. He wanted to make a difference. He was trying to make sense out of what he sees as reality. I think he's dead wrong. Mm -hmm. But instead of dismissing him, I just shared with him my own experience. And I said, well, sir, you know, uh, I hear what you're saying. I said, I got to tell you, though, you know, I've been in hundreds and hundreds of classrooms all over the state and all over the country. I've met thousands and thousands of kids. And I can count on one hand the number of kids I've met that don't like to learn. But I meet kids every time I go into a school that don't think they can. Mm -hmm. And if you and if you you do very different things, if you think it's problem A instead of problem B and we cannot give up on kids Mm -hmm. ever. And when you think they don't like to learn, you don't you're not ugly. You're probably not ugly in your heart. You don't mean you don't think you're giving up on them. That's not your intent. But you effectively are. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so let's talk about why. Why don't why aren't they showing through that? Because I've just never met never met a kid that didn't master something and something and they don't light up a room. Right. Um, but once kids don't think they can learn, they they act out. They they want to get out of there. They feel uncomfortable and unhappy, and they act out in all sorts of silly ways. Yep. It becomes so, a self-fulfilling prophecy. It sure does. The way we treat them and the way they treat themselves. It sure does. Okay, I know you have to go. Do yep. you have five minutes to tell me about, yep. tell me what you're working on now? Yeah. Well, I, uh, you know, I am, uh, I'm trying to, I, I want to build a, a permanent institution that uh, starts to press on some of the problems we t- we've talked about, uh, you know, uh, and uh, and I say a permanent institution because, you know, I, I would like to run for office again. I do think that there's a, a really important, maybe even crucial difference to be made in politics and in government. Uh, but I also know that or believe that politics is 80 percent luck and timing and, and uh, that luck and timing may never come around. And so you can't bet the difference you want to make in the world on being successful in politics. So I'm trying to think about, OK, what do I? What do I want to build uh, and be a part of uh, that will give me the best shot to, to help be a positive force in the state, whether or not I ever win anything? And I am passionate about opportunity education. I am passionate about making sure we create uh, economic opportunity in places that don't have it. You know, and I am I am passionate about doing things that other states have done to break or prevent the cycle of poverty. Like I said, like uh, making sure that our teenage children don't get pregnant in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I want to build an organization that brings great, talented people together and, and, and just figures out, you know, other places have made progress on these things. What does an Arkansas version of that look like? And, and assembles the money and the talent and holds it together indefinitely so that we make some progress on these things. You know, my hope is that in 10 years, this institution will exist. It'll be thriving. And instead of talking about teenage pregnancy, we'll be talking about another objective to break right. the cycle of poverty because, boy, we've made a lot of progress. And that progress is now going right. and it will go with or without me and my the folks I bring to the table. Mm-hmm. So, so it, not only to identify um, problems and come up with solutions, but also someone's got to implement them. Yes. So is, is part of it getting the politicians or the policymakers on board? Where we 
believe it's necessary to have them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know, as we talked about, I am not against government playing a constructive role where it can and should. But, you know, sometimes you don't need it. <laughs> if we can find a way where government isn't necessary or we can go around a, a legislature that's not going to be particularly helpful. Mm-hmm. Fine. You know, um, you know, I, I could imagine, you know, again, I come back to the example of teenage pregnancy. There's there's four or five different things that other states have done, um, some of which you need a legislature for, like you probably would need them if you're going to pursue more education in public schools. Mm -hmm. But you don't necessarily need them if you want to expand access to contraceptives uh, to to kids. You know, what you need there is to go into a community, sit down at a table with local, with a cross-section of local leaders and just say, hey, uh, do we agree that we would like a different reality? And hopefully you'd find communities where you would and say, OK, here's some options. What can we make work here? Mm-hmm. OK, we agree this is the way we want to go. OK, how? what do we need for that? We need resources. OK, well, if you can't get the government grant, where else can we get it? Arkansas has got a lot of money. <laughs> You know, you take the you take the Walton Family Foundation, which you know in progressive circles gets beat up all the time, uh, and we could sit here and 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 say, well, this they do this that's good, they do this that's bad, whatever. I'll tell you, they 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 give away more than five hundred million dollars every single year. Mm-hmm. That is an astounding amount of money. And there are some progressive Waltons. There are, and 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 the the idea that that and I just say all that money's going out, you know. Uh, the idea that, and that's one example of one foundation, and they're the biggest, but the idea that we don't have the capital to do mm-hmm. some of these things is is nonsense. I mean, heck, even in government, I, I can't resist saying this, but, you know, we we talk about uh, what we could do. Our, Arkansas, we do have a poor state. We do have the deck stacked against us in a lot of ways. I don't want to minimize that. But there's a lot of progress we can make that is more about our priorities rather than it is our resources. Mm-hmm. You know, like we did not have to give people making more than $400,000 a year a tax cut this year. We did. True. We could have raised teacher pay very substantially for the third of our teachers that are teaching in the highest need areas. And by the way, the legislature did not raise pay. They made a law saying that districts have to raise pay. They're not paying for it, uh, at yeah. least not after a couple of years. Right. So I just had to get that in. Sorry. <laughs> uh, Thank you. Yeah. Um, okay. So we obviously have a lot more to talk about. I'll give you a break. I have to meet my wife in 10 minutes. Yes. Okay. I want you to go. I want you to go. Um, thank you very much. And you need to get on this institute because I, I want to watch. Mm-hmm.